Do you hear that? Hear what? Oh, is it silver bells? No. Children laughing. No. A song, a song high above the trees? Do you hear the people sing? Welcome to All Be Pod for Castmas, where we put highbrow literature in conversation with lowbrow Christmas media. I'm Catherine. And I'm Juliet. And today our Christmas media is the new Christmas classic, Carly Rae Jepsen's It's Not Christmas Till Somebody Cries. And our complimentary highbrow literature is... Ooh, ooh, Carly Rae Jepsen with a sword, storming the barricade? Yes, in other words, Lame is Rob. Oh, the novel by Victor Hugo. I go, Hugo. Hey, so I thought we were doing the musical, not the novel. Oh, tell me a little bit about the musical. Did you read the novel, Juliet? I read the novel, but, you know, I think the... (laughs) Wait, wait, you you read the 1,500-page novel, and all I did was rock out to some songs that I've been listening to since I was 13? I'm sorry, Juliet. This is an egregious mistake. Totally on me. (laughs) I really think the, the musical, though, is going to be more accessible to the audience, more than likely, in part because people have listened to the Les Mis musical in some form or another. And in part because people can listen to the Les Mis musical easier than they can read the book. It would certainly take less time. (laughs) (laughs) And less like all-consuming devotion and intensive focus to do so. I will take your word for it because, again, I did not read this novel. (laughs) Um, But I do like the idea of taking a mega musical from the 1980s and treating it as high literature because people often think of musical theater as lowbrow but I think there's a lot to be mined in terms of analysis and interesting discussion so let's mm-hmm. and for what yeah. it's worth I mean I read an adaptation of Les Mis too right like I read it in English that's not <laughs> that's not the language it was originally written in it there's oh, a creation right. and a destruction in the act of translation, whether that's to music or to English letters. I wonder how many languages Carly Rae Jepsen has been translated into. Well, she's Canadian, so I think French and English is a, okay. an adequate uh, <laughs> place to start. That's enough. Did you know that Les Mis the Musical was originally in French? Yes, I did know that. I was once a 13-year-old musical theater nerd, mm. so I knew a lot of fun facts about Les Mis. I learned this today in part because I think it's fascinating to think of I dreamed a dream in time gone by as an English back formation to fit the meter of J'avais rêvé d'une autre vie. Oh, like, what does that translate to? I had a dream of another life. Oh, oh, interesting. 
like literally like I was having a dream of an an other life. That's so sad. Who am I? Is comment faire? There's a castle on a cloud. Is mon princeon chez mon déjà, which is Cosette singing about her, that her prince is 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 going to come for her. Since we're doing the <laughs> translations conversation now, I have been listening to Les Mis in Spanish, the Madrid <gasps> cast recording, which my Spanish is not great, but I Dreamed a Dream is Sonia Una Vida, which I believe is I Dreamed a Life, mm-hmm. or I Slept a Life. I don't know. I Dreamed a Life, mm-hmm. most likely, Sonia. And I should, I as they always me. say, merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, to sleep perchance to dream. They do say that. <laughs> they do alternatively say that, yes. I I can't wait until the year that we can do Hamlet. <laughs> you know, when I took theater history, Life is a Dream was the first play that we, um, the, the Spanish play from the 1600s. Yeah, the first play that we actually studied. Oh my gosh, I taught that when I was a TA for theater history, and I cannot remember anything about it that would be <laughs> useful for this podcast. There's a king and some stuff around a king. That's like... I, yeah, I remember liking it. Mm-hmm. I think. Anyway. We can remember plenty about the musical Les Miserables. Alright, so Les Miserables is an epic musical based on the sprawling French novel, which spans many decades, many characters. Our main guy is Jean Valjean, who was imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread and then runs away. And thanks to Santa Claus, is able to start a new life (laughs) as a mayor. Am I getting this right (laughs) so far? You know, okay, okay, keep going. Okay, so his adopted daughter, Cosette, falls in love with this really boring rich boy named Marius, whose friends are all poor students who get involved in a French Revolution. Not the French Revolution, but a failed June Rebellion of 1832, which I had to look up on Wikipedia. Much of Act Two is about this uprising, and spoiler, it's sad. <laughs> Spoiler, it's in the title. Like, it's Les Miserables. Not, it's you not know? Les Miserables until someone cries. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, are you familiar with the complete works of Shakespeare abridged? Abridged? Wait, what are you talking about? Possibly. It's a semi famous play. Like it's a, a comedy. comedy. I think yeah. I, I've heard of it. It's like a three person troupe. Mm-hmm. One of the things in trying to study the musical, and a little bit the book, but it, but especially the musical made me think, because Lame is typically is done in two acts, right? Yeah. And you have the first act covering literally decades and decades of time. Yeah. And then the second act basically takes place in one day. More or less, yeah. <laughs> in Complete Works of Shakespeare Bridge, like spoilers for a funny thing, they cover... Almost all of Shakespeare's plays in the first act, and then the second act is just Hamlet. That's such a you <laughs> play. That's so you. Like, if someone was no, like, like... <laughs> describe Juliet in one show, I would be like, <laughs> Act one is all of Shakespeare, Act two is just Hamlet. 
Uh, it's it's a fascinating thing. I think it uh, fits the modern style to yeah. to cover quite a lot and then rack the focus into the most dramatic and conclusive action part. Yeah. And I really love how Act 1 ends with one day more. And it's like we're spending these decades building up to what's going to be just a short amount of time. Kind of like how Christmas, I don't know, I feel like there's something to be said about all the anticipation, like an entire three months? Year, really. Really a year, and then it's over, you know, in a day. I I think if we take Christmas as a liturgical season, you have from January 7th Mm -hmm. all the way to mid to late December, in which we start getting into Advent. Yeah. And then we have Christmas, and then we have the Christmas season up until Epiphany. And so we have this, like, this long wait, and then we have the day of celebration of Christmas itself. And so we have this year of time being compressed, and then we have this day. I've... <laughs> Citing another cool thing from the, the story... There's a character that I really love in an interaction that I really love, which is the bishop who shows up very early on, who you describe as being very Santa Claus-like. He has a incredible conversation. If I could, like, separate out just one chapter of the 365 chapters that makes up this book, uh, of the five volumes and many books and then many chapters of those books, it would be this incredible section with Monsieur Bienvenu, the, um, the, the, the kindly Santa Claus-esque bishop, going and giving the last rites to a, quote, former member of the convention, i.e. a former revolutionary who is old, who was old when he was a revolutionary and is now dying. Uh, and they have this beautiful, wild conversation between the kindest man in the world who is still a bishop and... A man who is kind of right about most things, except for his assumptions about the bishop, but who is dying and who is despised and who's a you know, former revolutionary. And he talks about that all of this history has been forming, that this this storm has been building for all of these years. Oh, wait, what's this? We've got a recording from the text by Max Newland. The member of the convention continued... Alas, the work is incomplete, I admit. We demolished the ancient regime in deeds. We were not able to suppress it entirely in ideas. To destroy abuses is not sufficient. Customs must be modified. The mill is there no longer. The wind is still there. You have demolished. It may be of use to demolish, but I distrust a demolition complicated with wrath. Right has its wrath, Bishop. And the wrath of right is an element of progress. In any case, and in spite of whatever may be said, the French Revolution is the most important step of the human race since the advent of Christ. Incomplete it may be, but sublime. It set free all the unknown social quantities. It softened spirits. It calmed, appeased, enlightened. It caused the waves of civilization to flow over the earth. It was a good thing. The French Revolution 
is the consecration of humanity. The bishop could not refrain from murmuring, Yes, ninety-three! The member of the convention straightened himself up in his chair with an almost lugubrious solemnity, and exclaimed, so far as a dying man is capable of exclamation, Ah, there you go, ninety-three! I was expecting that word. A cloud had been forming for the space of fifteen hundred years. At the end of fifteen hundred years, it burst. You are putting the thunderbolt on its trial. And that those who, you know, have a problem with the methods uh, and the specifics of the French Revolution are putting, quote, the thunderbolt on trial that this storm has been building for all this time, that like the terrible atrocities of the monarchy and the aristocracy and the kind of system of, of you know, peasantry and fealty and, and the oppression on the, you know, by, by the bourgeois and, and all of these different things, that all of these injustices have been building up for all this time and that they break out in this moment of violence. Don't blame the moment of violence. Blame the time building up before it. Which I think, you know, that very early chapter, before we even meet Jean Valjean, is like a really interesting then reflection of how we think about the later rebellion and how we think about Christmas. Very cool. There's so many ways to approach Les Mis that we could talk about how it launched producer Cameron McIntosh's reign of high-budget mega musicals. We could talk about it as a pop opera with recurring musical motifs. Mm-hmm. There have been many interesting adaptations of Les Mis, including a movie by Tom Hooper and a production by Liesl Tommy in Dallas, which was set in modern-day America, which is pretty cool. There's a lot of, like directions we could go and my 13 year old Mm -hmm. self is freaking out but because this is a christmas castmas let's turn to our christmas media and see if that can help hone in our conversation with a useful lens so i think one theme we could potentially pull from the carly ray jackson song and is certainly reflected in les mis is a kind of benevolence in misery as an idea the idea that even if your circumstances are wretched, <laughs> even if they are they are negative, even if they are, are stressful or painful or, or hurtful, that there's still an opportunity to show kindness towards your, you know, fellow man, as 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 they would say. And I'm curious how you might see that reflected in Les Mis. Yeah. So benevolence in misery, that's I really like that as a idea linking these two because Jean Valjean is I mean miserable the very first thing we find out about him is that he had to steal bread he's somebody who's really struggling and over the course not to say I stole a loaf of bread and and, no (laughs) as you should And over the course of the musical, we just see him over and over again exhibiting kindness, going out of his way to do the right thing, even when 
he might not be rewarded for that, even if it puts him into greater risk or greater danger or greater potential for misery, he still consistently practices benevolence towards others. Yeah, thinking about both Jean Valjean's, you know, kindness towards Fantine, like in her misery, he finds an opportunity for for benevolence. We think about a lot of things that Jean Valjean does to save Marius's life, that there is in this state of definitive failure available to this rebellion, he finds benevolence that that there is this attitude to kind of project into the world, which in many ways he learned from the the bishop, from, uh, as I say, Monsieur Bienvenu, uh, <laughs> this bishop who has these fun little couplets of lines in the musical and is the main character for the first full book of Les Miserables. <laughs> And who I, of course, am absolutely fascinated by because he is, as you say, kind of a Santa Claus figure, which I think ties into the theme as well. Because what is Santa Claus, right? Benevolence in misery. It's bestowing gifts upon those who, who don't have them. That's the idea of Santa Claus, that, that there is an opportunity in the coldest and hardest and darkest part of the year to have kindness shown to you, to have an opportunity for for that. that. Like, that's what this figure represents. And the fact that he is literally a bishop of, you know, Christ, that there's <laughs> these kind of connections to this Christ mess as, as an idea. But his generosity and his benevolence to the miserable Valjean, and also the fact that the bishop is like, so not real to reality. He is so kind and good. He, he He's the drill candles meme, but the candles part of his budget is taking care of the poor. Uh, he, he goes and he gets like a carriage dispensation, which is a thing that bishops are allowed to get. So like he will get paid money for his carriage and then he doesn't spend it on a carriage. He spends that money on widows and he spends the money like to, to help people. And he just walks everywhere instead. He doesn't have multiple like outfits of this stuff. He just has one big coat and a staff and he walks around and he, he he's just like, what if goodness existed in a way that it doesn't in reality that like there aren't, I hate to say it. There aren't people who are benevolent in places of power in this way, Santa is a lie. Is Santa a lie? It, it's a question that gets brought up in It's Not Christmas Till Somebody Cries in the bridge. My niece is saying my nephew's jumping on my head. They keep on asking questions like, is Santa a lie? Well, it's not Christmas till somebody cries. It's Valjean Santa? Well, bear with me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about that song in my life in the musical where Cosette is coming of age. She's growing up and she's singing to Valjean, who has adopted her as a child, but never told her the truth about his past life and mm-hmm. why he's always on the run and their lives are kind of chaotic. So she has a a line in the song, in my life, I'm no longer a child and I yearn for the truth that you know. So dark, so dark and deep, 
the secrets that you keep. She's basically asking, like, are are you a lie, Dad? Like, what what's the deal? And if she knew the truth about his past, Valjean is afraid that she's going to see him differently. Maybe, like, no longer see him as a Santa Claus figure or as this... I, I don't know, idealized father figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Julia, I'm going to ask you one more time. Is Santa a lie? So not if one man is all men, then we're all Santa Claus. Hey, <laughs> amazing. Thank you. But really, I think our classic uh, Borgesian uh, saying, one man is all men, is interestingly reflected in Jean Valjean, who is, is like he's a bunch of different men. He's uh, Monsieur Madeleine, the, the Monsieur Lebert. Um, uh, he is like so many different names and so many different men and so many different like presentations of himself. You can look at, you know, okay, there's the man before the prisoner, and then there's the prisoner, and then there's like the the convict who's kind of not a particularly good person, but that's because he's surrounded by like people being truly just the worst possible to him and everything. And then there's like the reform stuff. And then there's him with Cosette. Like you can look at that, but like just in the musical alone, like just during that time period that the musical covers just in the presentation, he's still presenting different selves in all of these different ways, he's like going by a lot of different names. He's he's going through these different things, and he, that he still finds opportunities for. Uh, I mean, one of the things he is is quote the philanthropist during the whole you know section with Marius and Thenardier and in all of this this stuff. He is a giver of love to humanity, except it's complicated because he also sets himself at such a specific remove from like the direct love of other people, which I think makes him a lot like Santa Claus. Can I counterpoint your Jean Valjean is all men because he wears all these different hats and goes by different names. Um, sure. In the Are you going to counterpoint the part that Jean Valjean is Santa or, okay, go on. Maybe. Well, no, go on, go on. <laughs> so in the musical, at least, one of the most defining moments of his character comes about halfway through Act One. Who am I? Exactly. He sings a song, Who Am I? Which rests on the fact that there is only one Valjean, one Jean Valjean, and this man mm-hmm, who's exactly. there. Exactly, one man who is uh, all men. Hold up. There's the man who has been caught, who Javert thinks is Jean Valjean. Mm-hmm. It's is one not man. It's Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean, no, because then it's Jean Santa. Valjean steps forward and says, he's weighing it out in his head because he knows the extreme danger of if he puts himself out there, he's going to lose everything he's won, including being a mayor in a position of power where he is arguably as benevolent as one can be in that position. And he weighs the lives of all the people he mayors over and gives that up in exchange for this man who is not 
Jean Valjean. But maybe he does that because he knows that this one man is all men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I think it's worth saying for the listener at home that the idea that one man is all men is something of a canard. But Does that word mean an inside joke between Julia and Catherine? <laughs> No, it's it's a, a thing that you put up that you know isn't real. Oh, okay. So an inside uh, joke between Julia and Catherine. To a certain extent, possibly. Uh, an inside joke that we share with the with with the reader at home. I hope so. It is interesting that that, that other man, this is whole thing, his name is uh Champmathieu, who people think is Jean Valjean. In part because he looks like him and had a similar job to Jean Valjean, which was pruning trees. That was apparently Jean Valjean's job before he was a convict. And people think that there's evidence that this man is Jean Valjean because Jean Valjean's mother's name was Matthieu. So Jean Matthieu could become Champ Matthieu as one word. And that's this guy's name and everything. And there's this whole sequence of things where everyone thinks he's guilty of hiding the fact that he's Jean Valjean, and therefore he's guilty of stealing this branch of apples. That was a loaf of bread. Yeah, because we think you're guilty of this one thing, therefore we're confident that you're guilty of a second. And it, it's it's fascinating. And they accuse him of some stuff that's like so how does anybody know that Jean Valjean does this that like I really think that a lot of the things happening in the trial is like just inside Valjean's head oh it's such a the book is long there's a lot of things that aren't that interesting and there's a lot of things that are like wait a minute that's really interesting anyways I think this question about Jean Valjean and Santa, as you say, you know, kind of going back to Cosette, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about Cosette, mm-hmm. she's in some ways the face of Les Miserables, at least in mm-hmm. marketing, because mm-hmm. if you see the musical logo, it's this like sad girl in front of the French flag, mm-hmm. which has always really interested me because this sad girl only gets one song. She's on stage very briefly. And she becomes an icon representing the whole musical. And it's like, well, what is she really singing about? She's singing about the North Pole. Okay. Castle on a Cloud? Help me out here. (laughs) So the song is, there's a castle on a cloud. I like to go there in my sleep. Okay. So Castle on a Cloud, North I like to go there in my state, not any floors okay. kind of sweet because it's all covered in snow. I don't know if that's how it goes, but the point is that the castle on a cloud is not a real place. It's a fantasy that she tells herself for comfort. And mm. maybe she really does believe in it, just like kids really do believe in Santa. But it becomes a place where she can imagine a better world in the form of a castle in the clouds where a woman who's probably a stand-in for her mother sings her a lullaby and she finds great comfort in singing this song. I mean, she's being abused by the Thenardiers, right? Like, that this is part of what inspires her to sing this. And this is why she needs a little song 
She sings to survive. Yes. It's not castles till somebody clouds. Uh huh. That sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I. There's I, a Christmas on a cloud. I like to sing it to survive. Uh huh. So, but I think just putting these two songs next to each other really emphasizes when you talked about the benevolence in misery, it's benevolence as a coping mechanism, possibly. It's not necessarily like cheesy, oh, there's still good people, even though they're sad, but it, it actually is a tool, it's a strategy to be able to hope Mm. to kind of accept that okay it's not christmas till somebody cries the crying is part of our song we can accept that we can sing about it we can still hope for something better the castle on the cloud but we also are kind of grounded in this embracing of the messiness of the holiday or of our lives so Valjean is Santa. Does learning the truth about him make her cry? <laughs> um, well, she doesn't find out the truth until her wedding day, which is the day he dies. So I, she probably <laughs> does cry um, because it's sleep is and everybody cries a lot. But she's crying not because she's miserable, but I think it's also crying by the realization of how much Valjean loved her that he was telling this lie because he wanted to protect her and he wanted her to have a more sheltered life he made all these sacrifices for her I don't know like he, he wanted her to believe that the world could be something other than you know we're on the run because I stole a loaf of bread and now this cop is out to get to get us Mm-hmm. Which half the time it's Tenardier and his men who are out, out to get him or out to get them. Yeah. And it's very funny to me that he keeps being like, that must be Javert and his men. We must get out of here if we can. Uh, shut this door on this this life and, and live another day and everything. It's like, no, Javert doesn't know. You're going to Javert now as you're really, It's, you know, that's, um, Dramatic irony, right? Is that? Uh, I think that's from the book. I'm not quite sure which moment you're talking about. It, it, it's a, it's, it's touched, it's glanced on in the musical, but I think the dramatic irony part of it might be in the book, if that makes sense. But speaking of, you know, kind of constructing this world for for a child and dramatic irony. Okay. Isn't Santa Claus a lie parents tell to their children out of love? They want their children to have a magical experience. They want them to believe and get excited about the impossible. Can I share a really sweet anecdote? If I can share a really sad one afterwards. Great. So, <laughs> my. It's not Christmas till somebody cries, right? It really isn't. So, my boss from my summer job, who I adore, has a kid who. <gasps> really believes in Santa. I, I don't think he does anymore. He's in high school now, but he really did like through middle school. And 
there was a year where I think it was a pandemic year. Things were just really tough because mm-hmm. global pandemic, child you want to protect from disease, all of that. Parents overworked, tired, still want to make Christmas magical. Mm-hmm. They did something cutesy with like reindeer footprints and like dropped carrots or something. I don't know. There's some really cute setup they did to make it look like Santa had been there. On stage manifestations. But not quite. (laughs) Of the theater, which is raising a child. Sure. If you put it that way. Uh, So they went through a lot of effort to make it look like Santa had been there. And this child who was starting to kind of age out of the age where you sh- like kids usually start doubting Santa probably like maybe fifth grade. I think he was in seventh mm-hmm. grade. And he said, I know Santa is real because my parents do not have the energy to come up with this. They're so tired. They're so overworked. Like he has to be real. Yeah. There's no way my parents could pull this off. <sighs> what a fantastic, like, proof of the existence of god (laughs) do you know what i mean (laughs) like in the classical sense can you unpack that sure i mean well okay not to lay miz it a bunch but (laughs) one of the barricade boys jolie i think you know one of the the friends of the abc has this kind of philosophical idea of the mouse plus the cat is the revised and corrected proof of creation like you see this physical manifestation of something and therefore there is God. Mm, okay. There's these classical ideas of you set up a hypothesis and a conclusion and invariably, however you get there, the conclusion is that God exists. It's like a logical formal proof. And so Borges has this classic one where you see a bunch of birds. Oh wait, here's Max Newland to read it for us. The Argumentum Ornithologicum by Jorge Luis Borges I close my eyes and see a flock of birds. The vision lasts a second or perhaps less. I don't know how many birds I saw. Were they a definite or indefinite number? This problem involves the question of the existence of God. If God exists, the number is definite, because how many birds I saw is known to God. If God does not exist, the number is indefinite, because nobody was able to take count. In this case, I saw fewer than ten birds, let's say, and more than one. But I did not see nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, or two birds. I saw a number between one and ten, but not nine, eight, seven, six, five, etc. That number, as a whole number, is inconceivable. Ergo, God exists. But that number must exist, and therefore that number must be known by someone. And therefore, therefore that number must be known by God, since it is not known by any of us. Therefore, God exists. In Victor Hugo's Les Mis, there's this bit that's like, Listen, the existence of the cat and the mouse together prove that God exists. 
And here's Max Newland to read it for us. Dawn awakens minds as it does all the birds. All begin to talk. Jolie, perceiving a cat prowling on the gutter, extracted philosophy from it. What is the cat? he claimed. It is a corrective. The good God, having made the mouse, said, Hello, I've committed a blunder, and so he made the cat. The cat is the erratum of the mouse. The mouse plus the cat is the revised and corrected proof of creation. Because it was just the mouse, mice would go crazy and destroy everything. The fact that the cat is there to hunt the mice and like keep the mouse population in check and that the mouse exists there to feed the cat means that God is there and God is actively like involved in correcting and affecting the world and like making changes upon the active world, which is a a thing that comes up again with what revolution is that, that God revolution is God putting his thumb on the scale to correct the world Mm. when it's gotten too bad, which is also kind of the idea of Christmas that Christmas is like literally God putting his thumb on the scale of the world and saying, it has gotten too bad. Let me give a gift. Right? Can we back up? Because you uh-huh. just went to a whole other thing. And I was going to back up yeah, like, two thoughts from there. Uh, and, 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 I... and in a similar way that this this um, lovely kid, this this teenager now, is like, my parents are too tired to do this thing. And yet this thing happened. Therefore, magic must be real. To Santa extent, like Santa Claus must, must be real. In the same way that characters in Les Mis and in history see something happen and go, therefore God exists. Because well, that was just like a, a, a pattern of logic that you use to describe the things. Technically, the musical's approach to God is very close to the end. To love another person is to see the face of God. Mm, and what cool. I love about this story with this kid is that when maybe he does know there's no Santa and he's just humoring his parents because they know it gives them joy to give this to him. Mm-hmm. But if he doesn't, if he really does believe in Santa, when he reaches the point that he realizes there's no Santa, he will look back at this and realize oh, my parents just loved me that much. That's what the God was. That's what Santa was. It was how much my parents were willing to sacrifice to give me a good Christmas. So that that was a sweet anecdote, and now I'll share the sad one. <laughs> a canonical fact about Juliet's is I never got the chance to believe in Santa. We we just didn't have Santa. We had, like, yeah. Santa is a, like, I went to kindergarten and was like, why is everyone talking about Santa and everything? It's like, oh, Santa Claus is a like liberal secular myth to like dilute the the truth of of Christmas being just about, you know, the, the Christ child mm-hmm. and everything. I was like, oh, Santa, that thing from Coca-Cola cans. Like, like that was the the sum in total in like limit con- constraining function on yeah the possible potential magic of Santa. And, you know, in a, we look at Valjean building this, like, uh, cathedral of mistruth 
<laughs> of of, yeah. of not quite sharing the truth as an act of loving Cosette, we look at this teen's parents kind of constructing this um, farrago uh, as an act of love for, for the teen to like keep the magic in their lives. And then it's like, well, <laughs> what, do you, what do you call it when parents have no interest in magic existing in their, their child's life? Well, okay, to play devil's advocate, I mean, there could be something said for parents wanting their kids to know the truth young. I don't know. Not that that's really what's going on in your case, but I do know somebody... Um, but it's I, not Christmas till somebody cries, right? It's so true. No, I know a parent who their kids straight up asked, is there Santa? And the mom was like do you really want to know and the kid said yes so the parents said there isn't but your younger sister doesn't know that can you help us like can you pretend even though like I'll tell you the truth but can you pretend for the sake of the people who want to see you get excited about Santa basically so I mean there is potentially something respectable about if a child really wants to know the truth, like Cosette does, to tell tell her. I mean, I think Cosette especially is at an age where she can handle the truth. And arguably there is something unfortunate, almost miserable <laughs> about the fact that her father like feels the need to continue to coddle her. <laughs> J- just to play the other side of this. But if Valjean showed up to Cosette yeah. and was like, I'm your new father. There are no castles, there are no clouds. Never <laughs> think that there are. Well, I, I will mean, never give you the opportunity to dream. Like, really, they just then. <laughs> and it's not Christmas till somebody cries. The kids ask Santa a lie. We don't technically find out if she tells them or not, but we can deduce from her repeating, it's not Christmas till somebody cries. That she has made the children cry by saying there's no Santa. I have a slightly different interpretation. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Which is also a different interpretation of the song as a whole. Ooh. Right? I, which is going to be slightly difficult. So I'm going to do my best to get this thesis out there. Yeah. And it also has to do with Leibniz. Perfect. Which comes back to the idea of revolution, right? Mm. Revolution both meaning like this burst, but also this thing that's coming back around. Okay. Christmas, like a revolution, keeps coming back around. Suffering is part of the cycle. We have Christmas in response to suffering, just as we have revolutions in response to suffering. We do not suffer because it is Christmas, we have Christmas to bear the suffering. So my question is, mm-hmm. does Carly Rae Jepsen tell the kids that Santa is a lie or no? I think the children who are asking the question already know. Oh. That's the answer. They, they are doing the thing of imparting stress onto an 
an aunt or an yeah. uncle by putting them in a difficult situation Ooh. where the child has power over the adult. Because that's a thing that happens at family gatherings and, and things like that. And so Carly Rae Jepsen has to deal with the like slight stress of like, do I continue this facade and this child is just mocking me? How do I, am I the one to break it to this child? That can't be like, why am I stuck in this situation? Well, suffering to a certain extent is a thing that happens when people come together that shouldn't stop Mm -hmm. us from coming together. We have Christmas as an opportunity to come together and as an opportunity to, when there's stress from coming together at Christmas, when fighting and tears break out, when we come together at Christmas, we at least came together for a reason. And there's something that we can agree on at the core. And there's something that we can go away. We performed the act of Christmas together. And in the act of Christmas together, in the act of coming together in the coldest, darkest time of the year, that we're able to bear the suffering of the rest of the year and bear the suffering of coming together because coming together is still worth it beyond that. The magic of, you know, the culture of encounter is still worth it so that we can bear the suffering of the rest of the year. Because if we just were on our own, that would be worse than going to Christmas and crying while there. That, to me, is the thesis of it's not Christmas till somebody cries. It's not Christmas that causes the crying. Christmas exists, you know, cathartically as part of the cycle of crying. Which is super interesting in the context of failed revolutions, which is the heart of Act Two of Les Mis. Everybody's miserable because they're all dying in this revolution. And I think it's easier, it's easy to walk away from this show and think, this is such a downer. It's saying, don't even bother trying. Like, there's no point. Everything is just suffering. But I think the reason the show is so popular is that it, it's really not saying that. It It's showing all this suffering, but there is a hope in it. There is a, a cycle to it, if you will. Um, which I think I, is it, think, think about ending with, do you hear the people sing, right? Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say, like, it's encapsulated in the finale song, which the so the show ends with Jean Valjean on his deathbed, and he dies. Boohoo. It's quite sad. Um, because we spent the whole show watching his life. And when he goes, presumably to heaven, or whatever afterlife that is the the culminating thing of everything he's experienced he dies the the stage is filled with people singing do you hear the people sing which has the line is there a world you want to see and it's like yeah there totally is a world we want to see we want to see the world where they want the revolution we want this things to be better than they are and this show i cry every single time just for the record every single time the finale, do you hear the yeah. people saying, will you join in our crusade? Who will be yeah. strong and stand with me? Somewhere beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? Yes. Do you hear the distant drums? It is the future that they bring when tomorrow comes. It's so heartbreaking <sighs> because tomorrow doesn't come. And yet, 
It does. Like it, it comes every year. It's Christmas. It's not Christmas, but it, it comes in the sense of it's people coming together to dream of this better world. And it might be a lie that we're telling ourselves, but that's all we can do. Like that is the thing that makes it worthwhile. And that is Valjean's heaven. The heaven isn't he dies and he goes off to the castle on the cloud. The heaven is he dies and he's with all these people who have given up their lives for this ideal mm-hmm. in that this idea of not, not just accepting the hardship not just saying these conditions are the best we can hope for but for dreaming that there is more and constantly striving towards this better future and knowing that things aren't going to be perfect and that maybe this better future isn't going to come but you can still find pockets of perfection in the journey of getting to mm-hmm. that better world. I think tying this together as well makes a lot of sense with to love another person is to see the face of God. Yeah. Wherein both individual acts of kindness, but also like, why are the people rebelling? It's not just because French people happen to be rebellious and like, like revolutions. It's like, even if our revolution might fail, does that mean it's not worth doing? The answer is no. Why is our revolution worth doing? Our revolution is is worth doing because of our love for our fellow man, our love for the people who are oppressed. And that love drives us even to create a whole, you know, uh, fictional persona. That love drives us to know we are being scammed and still give money away. That love drives us to Forgive the person who's been persecuting you and and hurting you. That love drives us to set up a barricade and die on it for the potential possibility and the idea that you can't just say, I don't see it. You can't just say, that doesn't affect me. Like, you you can't do that. You have to fight for that, even if it entails crying (laughs) or dying. It's... Something, there's a lot of examples of this in our world, but it's something that I see in climate change activists and Mm. people who know climate-wise the future is bleak, but to see another person is, to love another person is to see the face of God, to still want to save humanity, even in the face of things are going to get worse, how can we still come together, sing the song to survive, find ways of resisting and tread forward, even in these dismal circumstances. The secret is to sing a little song to survive. And to celebrate Christmas with your loved ones and find those moments of eggnog and cheer amidst it all. Not accepting your conditions, constantly trying to move towards a better future knowing that things won't be perfect and finding the perfection in the imperfections to accept that it really isn't Christmas until somebody cries. Exactly. Ho, ho, ho. Thanks for listening to I'll Be Pod for Castmas brought to you by the Moonshot Network. Yay, Moonshot! I'm Juliet. You can find me online at cohost.org slash folly and this show at Christmas on Cohost. And I'm Catherine. You don't need to find me. <laughs>
The art for I'll Be Pod for Casmus is by Ryan Jensen, and the voiceover for this episode is by Max Newland. For our episode coming out on the 23rd, we'll be going over Les Miserables, It's Not Christmas Till Somebody Cries, and the Borges short story, The Form of the Sword. And if you haven't read that short story, next week in this feed, you'll hear the dulcet tones of Max Newland reading you Jorge Luis Borges's short story, The Form of the Sword. This month, you can also catch me guesting over at Unnatural Selections, another podcast on the Moonshot Podcast Network, talking about Charles Dickens's The Christmas Carol and The Muppet Christmas Carol, a very fascinating adaptation that I imagine if you're listening to this might have a special place in your heart as well. <laughs> Until next time, happy Castmas to all. And to all a pod night. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about Gavroche next time. <gasps> Gavroche! <laughs> Adaptations. Ever watched your favorite book become a movie and said, huh, well that certainly was a weird decision? Of course you have. Hollywood is constantly making changes for their adaptations, and this podcast aims to answer the question of why. Join host Emma Shannon and a different guest every month on Unnatural Selection, a new Moonshot Network podcast, as they talk about a film, its source material, and what makes an adaptation good, faithful, and less commonly, good and faithful. 